Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Harry's the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code HANGUP. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 16th. 2016. On today's show, we'll discuss the resurrection of a 1996 sexual assault allegation against Peyton Manning and how that allegation has been reported then and now. We'll also talk to New York Times columnist Joe Nacera and New York Times contributing writer Ben Strauss about their new book, Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. And we'll have a conversation with Greg Coase, the director of the documentary The Great Alone, about the four-time Iditarod sled dog race champion, Lance Mackey. Joining me in Washington, D.C., in our new podcast studio, is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Stefan, can you take our listeners on a tour? Take Mike Pesca on a tour. Mike, listeners. Got kind of felt walls, which is nice. The soundproofing felt. I guess that's a new thing. We got some blocks. We got a blue block. 
black, gray, and there's some duct tape holding up some covering over the windows. Maybe I'll take a photo right now. We can post it later. Yeah. Hey, Mike, while I'm taking this photo, why don't you tell uh, the people where you are? Well, that to me, that brought to mind John Calipari telling us about his locker room and the extra long lockers and the very <laughs> plush towels. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in Florida, the state of Florida, because uh, it's, it's prime recruiting ground, fertile recruiting ground. I am going to see uh, Bruce Springsteen show tonight. It's kind of why I'm in Florida, but also kind of not. I have to leave it opaque. Um, he's the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. Bruce and, Springsteen is? And not, not challenging our demographic uh, beliefs about Bruce Springsteen fandom. <laughs> but hey, it's the boss. Wait a minute. You went to a Bruce Springsteen show recently. I, I became a middle-aged white sports writer. Yes. It was my, <laughs> it was my, it was my bar mitzvah. In a sense, as soon right as soon as he could not challenge the demographics, he went to a show. <laughs> On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll discuss whether, as per Deadspin, baseball middle reliever is the best job in sports, or is, is it better to be a pro bowler, maybe a golfer, perhaps a curler? To hear this bonus segment and others like it, on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com/hangupplus. You can get a free two-week trial of Slate Plus at that same URL, slate.com slash hangup plus. In the run-up to the Super Bowl, the Daily Beast published a piece with the headline, Peyton Manning's Forgotten Sex Scandal. And that was, I think, an accurate headline. Not too many people remembered uh, what had gone down at Tennessee when Peyton was there in the mid-90s. In that story, Robert Silverman wrote that the allegations of HGH use in Al Jazeera's Dark Side documentary weren't the only potential skeleton in the quarterback's closet. Uh, he wrote that in 1996, the University of Tennessee investigated an allegation that Manning, who was then a junior quarterback on the Volunteers football team, placed his testicles and rectum in the face of a female athletic trainer. The school punished Manning by requiring him to run at 6 a.m. and taking away his dining hall privileges for a whole two weeks. The trainer, Jamie Ann Nawright, got a settlement of $300,000 from the school due to that alleged incident, as well as several other alleged incidents of sexual harassment. Okay, fast forward to 2002, uh, the athletic trainer filed a defamation suit against Manning after receiving a letter at her new workplace, which was Florida Southern College. It was addressed to Dr. Vulgarmouth. In a book that Manning co-wrote with his father, Archie Manning, he had called the trainer a vulgar woman and railed against women being allowed in men's locker rooms. In the defamation suit that uh, Narite filed, which was settled with the terms remaining confidential, a Tennessee cross-country runner named Malcolm Saxon denied Manning's claim that it had been Saxon who had been the target of Manning's mooning, saying to Manning, bro, you have tons of class, but you have shown no mercy or grace to this lady who was on her knees seeing if you had a stress fracture. Okay, fast forward again to a few days after Manning and the Broncos won the Super Bowl and Sean King, who's known best as a Black Lives Matter activist, wrote a piece in the New York Daily News headlined Peyton Manning's squeaky clean image was built on lies as detailed and explosive court documents showing ugly smear campaign against his alleged sexual assault victim. Not the most uh, brief headline, but it covers many of the bases. King published for the first time uh, court documents that had never before seen the light of day, 74-page facts of the case filed by Jamie Narright's lawyers as part of that uh, defamation case against Manning. Those documents include a transcript of conversations 
between Peyton's father, Archie, and the ghostwriter of their book, in which Archie says that Peyton had told him that Narite was kind of trashy, had the most vulgar mouth of any girl he'd ever seen, and was unattractive but had big breasts, and had been out with a bunch of black guys and had a toilet mouth. So I felt like that long introduction was necessary, so we establish the terms of the conversation. There's a lot that's in dispute in the initial claim in 1996, Narite kind of described what had happened as more of a mooning. Later, she claimed that Manning had actually touched her face with his testicles and rectum. And then with the Sean King thing, the article was just really hard to understand exactly what he was talking about. It was clearly a piece of advocacy, and he didn't acknowledge that this was a prosecutor's um, brief, essentially, that this was what Narite's lawyers presented and that he didn't include anything from Manning's defense. And so you can't look at that and say, oh, well, it's proven that Peyton Manning did this or did that. So given all that, Stefan, um, what should we think about what Peyton Manning did? What should we think about how it's been reported? We should think that what Peyton Manning did, whether it amounted to his genitals and rectum making contact with, uh, with with the trainer or not, amounted to a sexual assault. And at the very least, was extremely poor behavior, given the setting. He's an athlete. He's working with someone. He did a dumbass thing, literally involving his ass. Should that change the way we view Peyton Manning's entire career, which is the implication that Sean King made in that extremely tedious, extremely long, extremely poorly written, and apparently not edited at all. Um, there's no attempt at reporting in, in that piece that was published by the Daily News. Should that change how we view Peyton Manning and his entire career? I don't know. Uh, Peyton Manning did something extremely dumb. If it was sexual assault, probably should have been prosecuted at the time. The university appears to have covered up for his behavior. The university settled with the trainer at some point. Um, the question is, should we conflate this with the end of Peyton Manning's career with how we view Cam Newton, which is the context that Sean King framed this in, and whether this reflects on the entirety of Peyton Manning's moral and business life? So the the message I'm getting from you, Stefan, is that uh, it's hard to say. Yeah. And that we're conflating this with like 800 other different kind of arguments that we're having at the same time, whether it's about whether Peyton Manning is a cheater, whether we're giving Cam Newton uh, too hard a time because he's black. And then this 1996 sexual assault or sexual harassment claim is kind of thrown into the blender. And we're being asked to, you know, say, does this mean uh, that Peyton Manning's a bad guy? And we don't really know a lot of the facts here because, as you said, this was a presentation made by a plaintiff's attorney that resulted in a settlement. So we don't know ultimately what the facts of the case are, and the Daily News did nothing to try to tease out some of those facts. So I, I think it might be useful to take out all the Sean King-driven parts of it. Wait, we wouldn't even know about this story if it weren't for Sean King. That is true. But everything that Sean King touched or inflected, let's put those in so aside because most of them have a problem. Like, is it a comparison between Peyton and Cam? And did Peyton get a free ride? And he 
didn't seem to understand. He did say that it was a plaintiff's brief, but he didn't seem to understand what that meant, and he didn't seem to have the appropriate level of editors. I mean, if if his editors know that he is essentially an advocate journalist for the Black Lives Matter movement or some social justice uh writer, then maybe you should assign someone who knows legalities if he's writing about such a legal case. And also just reading the article was hard to get to any facts. But throw that all aside, what do we think about this? It is true that it was known, but since just like the Cosby accusations were known, it wasn't really grappled with. And it seems pretty disgusting, not just what Peyton Manning did. And by the way, there's this other portion of it, which is the phrase sexual assault has become kind of a murky phrase. Josh described what he did. But I can reasonably come to the conclusion, especially because of the uh, track athlete who said, come on, Peyton, you know you're lying, could come to the conclusion that he actually did it, and then he tried to cover up, and then he tried to hurt this woman's life, and that's that's some really bad stuff. It's really bad. Luckily, I'm not the kind of person who did put Peyton on a pedestal, but I take into account all the caveats, and of course, we haven't heard the other side of the story, but even just reading Peyton's description of what happened with this woman, and even if you think that it was a mooning that she didn't understand, that's still extremely un- gentlemanly behavior it's still i don't mean just mooning someone i mean all right let's say it was a mooning that she didn't understand and you got to go and trash her in a book what's that about and by the way even if you take peyton manning's side of it that he trashed her in a book because she blew a man uh mooning a manning mooning out of proportion that's crap and it did hurt her life so that's bad that's some bad stuff totally totally irrespective of sean king yeah and i think that whatever you think about what happened in the room and what Manning did, the behavior afterwards, I think, is hard to defend. It's very hard to defend. You should, I, don't, I don't think you can defend it. And that's based on, I think we do have enough evidence. I, th- I think uh, by the preponderance of evidence standard that we use on this podcast, um, it's pretty clear <laughs> that Manning trashed this woman and didn't really care about, um, you know, her livelihood, her reputation, that it seemed like he could have really skated by, skated past this. It seemed like the university wanted to help him do that. And he just couldn't help but say really shitty things about her. Well, he and his and father and put the his blame entire on her. family. I mean, this this really is about power and influence. I mean, the Mannings are revered in the South and revered at the University of Tennessee. And the university appears to have gone to great lengths to protect Peyton Manning's image from this, from the fallout from, from this episode. And yeah, there was something about it. And whether that was lawyers coming after the Mannings, whether that was a feeling of resentment that they were being persecuted, whether the Mannings believed that this was just, as Peyton described it to Tim Layden in Sports Illustrated in 1996, I like to play jokes with guys. I realize now I've got to be careful. So whether they just felt like, hey, this was just a college freshman playing a, a, a prank on someone. Well, that's what the tone was in the book, right? It's that like this woman was in the locker room and ruined all of our fun. And the answer to that is women shouldn't be in the locker room. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, Mike, just go so – cut so um, against Manning's reputation of being this gentleman – and of being a kind of player that we should all look up to, of being somebody who's kind of above 
the usual, um, you know, things that we consider, you know, football players to to do, the kind of behavior that we tut-tut at um, in locker rooms and college and the pros. And so it does hurt his reputation if you believed all that stuff. Yeah, except, you know, he was 19. So if this was something that we knew and processed for a while, either as a mooning or something worse, we'd have, he'd still be doing Papa John commercials because it seems like he's genuinely, you can not only rebound and grow from this, but this could be the worst thing you've done or one of the worst. And, and, you know, you could still be a revered figure. And it seems like he does a lot of good things too. So biggest problem? Thinking of quarterbacks as anything other than human beings who have flaws like the rest of us. Well, I would say two things. Number one, the thing that he did when he was 19, he did when he was 19. The continual trashing of the woman he's done throughout his adulthood as a professional and as an adult. And he enlisted the consent of his family. He enlisted his family into it. And he claimed that, um, you know, the woman was trashy and was hanging out with black guys making this kind of like disgusting racial implication about her that she was like this loose, trashy woman. And the second thing is we have this conversation kind of perpetually about what standard we should hold athletes to and, you know, whether they should be role models. Uh, And I think it's fair to say that we shouldn't put a guy like Peyton Manning on a pedestal and that he shouldn't be a role model. But at the same time, I don't think like sexually harassing or assaulting a woman and then allegedly defaming her repeatedly afterwards is something where we go like, oh, well, we, you know, I guess that guy's not a hero. It's like, no, that means like affirmatively you're a bad person. (laughs) It's not like you go from hero to regular person. You go from hero to bad person. But, you know, we're able to bracket this as like not only sports fans, but just as people on earth. I mean, CF Kobe Bryant at All-Star Game. And and let's also note, I guess this book, we should say this book was written in when, 2000? Yes. Peyton begins his discussion of this incident with the following sentence, which was thought about and apparently went through a ghostwriter. So this wasn't a one-time indiscretion. Never mind that women in the men's locker room is one of the most misbegotten concessions to equal rights ever made. When dad played, there was still at least a tacit acknowledgement that women and men are two different sexes with all that implies, and a certain amount of decorum had to be maintained, meaning when it came to training rooms and shower stalls, the opposite sex was not allowed. Common sense tells you why. This call for decorum by the man who, at least by his own mission, mooned a fellow player while a trainer was attending to him, a female trainer was attending to him, he couldn't have known. Anyway, that's probably not what happened. Let's also put the life of someone like Peyton Manning in context. Incredibly privileged. Wait, more context? More context. Incredibly privileged. Oh my God, so much context. All men, football from the age of eight, nine, ten, I don't know. And when I wrote this piece for you, Josh, a few years ago about how obsessive compulsive Manning is, all of those traits reflect on someone who didn't have to interact a whole lot outside of locker room type worlds. His wife is someone that's that he was friends with, the girlfriend with from, I think, freshman year of college. So how much it helps to have a sort of normal functioning of life, adult life, learning how to interact with the other sex, learning how to behave outside of an all-male environment, you know, who knows? I mean, Peyton Manning 
might just be a jackass. A lot of the traits that he that made him great as a quarterback were jackass-like traits, and teammates <laughs> talked about what a jackass Peyton Manning could be. How could that not translate into who he is as a human being? Well, I feel like we're just kind of going in uh, circles here because it's impossible yeah, to to right. adjudicate like who this dude is like deep right. in his soul. It's but possible we, that he could have like changed and is now like a better mm-hmm. guy than he was back then. I also know sure. like when I went to school at uh, Newman, I stopped going there after eighth grade in uh, New Orleans. He was a senior when I was in eighth grade. Everybody at school thought he was a great guy and mm-hmm. like treated everyone well and wasn't like you know somebody who held his celebrity over everyone, which means absolutely nothing that that was his reputation. But mm-hmm. it would, I think, be relevant if he did have that reputation back then, but he certainly did not. Look, you can also imagine that this was an extremely rare, if not a one-time incident where he wasn't (laughs) trying to, maybe in his mind, he wasn't trying to harm anyone or he wasn't doing anything to her that he hadn't done to anyone else. And the consequences in his mind were so much bigger than his intent. And he did feel that it hurt him for the Heisman Trophy. And he, and he put a sense of outrage to it that it didn't deserve. Yeah, and I think um, his behavior was sort of validated in the fact that this really wasn't something that particularly attached itself to him or his reputation. And Jason McIntyre of The Big Lead, this has been resuscitated several times, but when McIntyre wrote about it in 2014, his headline was, and I'm paraphrasing, like, can you imagine if this had happened in the social media age, which is exactly right. Um, If such an allegation happened now, I mean, you can compare to Brett Favre and the, you know, pictures of his penis that he sent to Jen Sturger when he was with the New York Jets and the way that that was covered compared to how this was covered, you know, something that happened 15 years earlier. But, you know, with the Bill Cosby thing, Tom Skoka wrote a piece for Gawker that was like, hey, like, remember that all of this, like, crazy stuff happened with Bill Cosby and all these allegations were made? And then Hannibal Burris talked about it, and then it kind of blew up from there. And it just shows you that, A, like, the media has totally changed in a short period of time, and B, just the power that journalists and the media have to put these stories out there and, you know, with the way that... Sean King wrote about it. I think it did a lot of damage because it just gives so much ammunition to people who would argue that, you know, Manning is being railroaded. It was just such a shoddy job and it could have been presented in a much more fair-minded, even-handed way. But either way, I think it's just so clear that journalists can bury something or, um, you know, breathe life into it. And that this is just going to keep happening because, you know, there are lots of stories out there that were not um, written about in the days of Twitter and Facebook and will be revived. All right. Now it is time for a word from our sponsor, and that is Harry's. Harry's allows me to shave in a manner which I had not shaved before. I'm anti-shave. I've talked about this on the podcast. That hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. But maybe it's start, I'm starting to move on the on the shaving continuum <laughs> towards the pro shaving forces. You're dropping from like 93 
93rd percentile to 91st? It's a, it's a process. It's a gradual process. Maybe again, maybe into the 80s. The process. Dipping into the 70s by next week. Wow. Um, because Harry's, it's the only shaving company that has amazing quality and low prices. Harry's blades are super sharp, but they're the kind that cut the hair on your face. That's the good kind of super sharp blades. Um, the prices are factory direct. They cut out the middleman, shipped right to your door. They're half the price of the leading brand. Over a million guys have already made the switch. Uh, you don't need to pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades. You can get them for half the price at harrys.com. For just $15, you can get a razor moisturizing shave cream and those three razor blades. Harry's prices are already really low, but we've worked out a special offer for all of our listeners. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the promo code HANGUP. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. In a New York Times column four years ago, Joe Nocera asked, how can the NCAA blithely wreck careers without regard to due process or common fairness? How can it act so ruthlessly to enforce rules that are so petty? Why won't anybody stand up to these outrageous violations of American values and American justice? Nocera's new book, Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA, co-written with Ben Strauss, is an attempt to answer those questions. Nestera and Strauss profile NCAA enemies, including sneaker marketer Sonny Vaccaro and former UCLA basketball player Ed O'Bannon, whose lawsuit against the NCAA led to a landmark antitrust ruling. They also argue clearly and forcefully that the NCAA is morally bankrupt and that it victimizes so-called student-athletes in ways that are certainly immoral and also probably illegal. Joining us now to discuss all this are Joe Nacera and Ben Strauss. Hello. Hello. Thanks Hi. for having us. Hi, guys. Um, so the opener of the book is the story of Ryan Boatwright, the UConn player. And Joe, this seems to have been the case that kind of uh, radicalized you. Um, would you say that that's fair? Uh, I'd already become a little bit radicalized because I'd written a long article for the New York Times magazine about paying the players, about how one might go about it. And yeah. I had learned a lot from that. But the Boatwright case uh, was so outrageous and so wrong. And when I, one of the things I've discussed, and it was more about his mother. They were, they were actually going after his mother. It really wasn't about him. He hadn't done anything wrong. And by the way, she hadn't done anything wrong either. But the investigation, which included like a, a five hours in a hotel room with four white guys, she's black, a single mom of four, where she's not even allowed to pick up the phone and call her parents who are taking care of the other kids, um, you know, demanding that they see every check she written for the last three years, going to other people's place of work to verify that the checks uh, were for Christmas presents and not, you know, some nefarious thing. And this was a claim from an ex-boyfriend of hers that Bo Wright had received extra benefits that would imperil his eligibility. Right, right. And, and the extra benefit is that uh, she doesn't have any money, so she wanted to go to, uh, to visit the colleges that he was being recruited. And a friend uh, who also was his coach and a longtime friend paid for the flights. And that was the impermissible benefit. I mean, first of all, it's unbelievable that that would be a bad thing. Um, and it just shows you how idiotic uh, the amateurism rules are for the NCAA. And also, by the way, how biased against poor, disadvantaged black people. Joe and Ben, I'd like to take a step back. 
and try to understand from your perspective and your reporting how the NCA grew to be this monolithic, dictatorial, self-aggrandizing and self-serving, financially especially, institution that governs college sports with such uh, an iron hand. Well, you can trace it back to Walter Byers, the first executive uh, director of the NCAA, who built this national organization almost out of nothing um, back in the 1950s. And he was a incredibly secretive guy. His, his idol was J. Edgar Hoover. He used to tap phone lines at the NCAA. Uh, to listen to, to the calls that the, the staffers were making. He had spies in the building to tell him who was coming in to work late. And and this is the guy who who put together this 400-page rule book with, with, you know, rules that govern athletes, everything from how much they eat to, you know, who can give them a ride. And I think the NCAA, um, as a institution really takes its cues from from Walter Byers, the man who built it. One of the amazing things is, is he built this rigid, rules-bound, sort of heartless culture. And here we are, you know, half a century later, and that culture still exists. Uh, and nobody has uh, been able to, or for that matter, tried uh, to break it down or to change it or to give it the two things that it really doesn't have at all, which is compassion and common sense. I think that there is principle and we can understand why the principles of the NCAA are that. And then there is money. And once the money gets to the billions and when you add it all up, the high billions, you know, you have to wonder not if you give a little on principle, but if the principle becomes totally different. And I think that that's a problem with the NCAA, that all they ever do is argue principle. And it's one thing if it's 1982 and the rights for the basketball tournament are selling for like $15 million. And it's another thing if it's 2015 and the basketball rights are cumulatively over years in the billions. I think I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Jay Billis tells a story about, you know, playing for Coach K. Um, and, and Coach K made $100,000. And, and now, sort of looking at his salary rise, he makes $10 million now. And, and one of the things people see when they look at college sports is this, this incredible dichotomy where you have coaches making $10 million a year, commissioners making $2 million a year. The conferences with their TV networks are pulling in $200 million a year. And, and the players are still getting these scholarships. Uh, and, and the difference between what, how a coach can market himself, can sell himself, can change schools willy-nilly, and what a college athlete can do, how they have no control over their name and, not, name and likeness, it, that dichotomy um, is just so stark now that it's, it's staggering. One of the things that we really document well in the book is the process by which the NCAA, which had once believed in trying to control the amount of money, keep it down, uh, keep sports more or less amateur, how they converted to this different model, which they now call the collegiate model, in which they make the intellectual justification that everything about college sports can be professionalized. You know, so you can have Coca-Cola, the official drink of the NCAA, but the labor force, i.e. the players, must remain unpaid. That's what the collegiate model fundamentally is. They don't say it like that, but that's what it is. So, Joe, I mean, you, you talk about how the hypocrisy is so stark. Ben mentioned that as well, how the dichotomy between what coaches make and what players do um, is so stark. And it is to all of us. But 
I uh, go on the college football message boards, as one does, and uh, <laughs> there is absolutely no interest in this argument among um, people who populate those boards, people who consider themselves like the hardest of hardcore of college football or college basketball fans. And so I wonder how you think about persuasion then when the hypocrisy is so clear to us, but for a lot of fans, they would say, well, you know, these guys are getting such a great deal. They get an f- education and I would be so happy to be able to play for my favorite school. Like, what are they complaining about? So do you even try to persuade those people? How do you think about your task there? Uh, well, I think the most persuasive fact is that they don't get a real education, especially uh, the football and men's basketball players by and large, uh, that the education is a sham. They often don't graduate. They often take clo- classes that are just meant to keep them eligible. The uh, University of North Carolina scandal, the sham class scandal that went on for 20 years is the classic example. Having said that, I, I understand that many of these fans are not going to be persuadable. Uh, just as many baseball fans, uh, when Marvin Miller was agitating for free agency and Kurt Flood was basically losing his career, um, to, to get free agency, many baseball fans said, oh, this will wreck baseball and so on and so forth, and they just got used to it. It's not going to come from the fans. It's really – there are only two ways the system is going to change. Uh, the first is through the courts. Uh, you know, and the O'Bannon case, which I, I hope we get to talk to about talk about in a minute, was a real disappointment for people who wanted uh, major changes. But there are other cases coming down the pike, and so there's still a possibility. The other really way, other real way, you're going to get changed is if the players themselves say enough. And that's a really hard thing for 18 and 19-year-old and 20-year-old kids to do, who all think they're going to be professional and they don't want to rock the boat. I understand that, but. Their consciousness is a lot raised than it used to be, and the Missouri football strike, which was not about themselves but was about racism on campus, showed every athlete in the country how powerful they could be as a force because 36 hours after that strike, the president of the university resigned. If you had a college basketball team, and I admit this would be a hard thing, If you had a college basketball team that refused to go out on the court for the Final Four, you would change the system in a half an hour. Well, Taylor Branch wrote about that in his piece in The Atlantic, that that was a possibility. And there's been a lot of disagreement over how real of a possibility that that actually was or would be in the future. And isn't one of the real issues that these are transient workers? I mean, they're only there for one, two, three or four years, depending on the sport. Um, But the consciousness is certainly rising. the Wisconsin basketball player Nigel Hayes did some excellent trolling of the NCAA the other day. There was a piece about how Under Armour supplies basketballs for um, for for schools that NCAA schools can pick their own basketballs based on their shoe contract, and that the texture and feel of the basketball is different from school to school, and that's difficult for the athletes because they really the, you know, the equipment does differ. And Hayes said, hey, it's an amateur sport. We're just here for fun. It's really not that serious. So I guess any ball should be okay. So, I mean, it's these little things to me that indicate that consciousness is rising and that message will transfer from a Nigel Hayes to another athlete to maybe a team of athletes someday. But how optimistic are you that that could happen? Well, you, you mentioned the, the Taylor Branch story. We, we write about uh, in the book that the 1991 UNLV team was planning to strike 
for the NCAA championship game. And they had a number of players on the team had beefs with the NCAA. It was the Jerry Tarkanian coach team, and, and he had you know decades worth of, of litigation against the NCAA. Greg Anthony was on that team, and the NCAA had told him that he couldn't run a t-shirt business because you know it violated amateurism. They had plans, they had discussions about striking in the in the championship game, and what happened is they lost in the <laughs> final four to Duke, a team they had that I think they had beaten in the in the national championship game the year before. Just by. another crime that Duke perpetrated against uh, <laughs> so Duke. There, there you go. Against. But you you wonder if that had happened, how different college sports would look today, and I think the answer is it would look awfully different because you look at what happened in Missouri, how much power um, the players do have, and by signing these mega million, sometimes billion dollar TV contracts, the players have an incredible amount of power, um, whether they realize it or not. And, and I, think, I think awareness is growing. And I think um, the way people look at the NCAA is different now than it was just even five years ago when Taylor Branch's piece came out. Joe, I wanted to ask you about your transition from writing about everything like economics and fracking to writing to going on the sports beat, specifically the NCAA sucks beat. Um, it seems to me because I've done a, uh, a lot of different reporting that when you deal with uh, the issues that you're dealing with here, the outrages are so clear and so easy to get your mind around the kids, the people who are wronged are so clearly black and white wronged. And yet, if you back up two steps, the overall societal implications, if everything were changed, how much would we all benefit? Eh, I don't know. Not a lot. We probably should. These NCAA colleges in basketball should probably be the minor leagues of the uh, NBA. A bunch of spots are taken away from more deserving kids so a, uh, a good basketball player could get into Princeton. I'm just saying the stakes as a society might not be as high as they are during the financial crisis. Do you feel any of that or do you think about it a different way? Well, of course, uh, I wrote about the most important issue of our day a few weeks ago, Deflategate. Um, (laughs) um, Of course, you're right. Uh, When I was on the op-ed page, one of the issues that I really um, uh, tried to plant uh, was uh, that people should smoke e-cigarettes instead of cigarettes, that e-cigarettes could save, <laughs> could save millions of lives, this is my opinion, uh, but the public health community, for reasons of politics and culture, uh, refused to back them, and you know, to, to my view, that was actually killing people. So is that a more important issue than whether college athletes should get paid or should have rights or due process? Yeah, of course it is. When I first started writing about the NCAA, Back in the, I mean, literally four or five years ago, I would on the op-ed page, I would get emails from readers saying, you know, if I wanted to read about sports, I'd read about the sports page, write about something that matters. But I kept doing it. And what I would say in my response to these people is, this is not a sports issue. It's a human rights and a civil rights issue. And I do believe that race has a lot to do with this, and uh, lack of money has a lot to do with it. And yeah, so it's maybe it's not the biggest thing in the world, but it's something that we ought to be able to fix. And that one of the reasons is it outrages people like me, especially when we first start looking at it, is that you just can't believe that an organization in America today could be this horrible to a group of, of, of 
poor black people, poor black kids. It just seems so wrong. And and I ha- I've known I've gotten to know lawyers who have dived into this three or four years ago, and and they have the same reaction. No due process. How can this be? You're going to end somebody's career just on a whim? How can this be? And and that you know when you go back to the Ryan Boatwright story that we began with, that's the kind of emotion that I went through. How can they do this? So, yeah, it's not the biggest issue in the world, but you know. I think it's one you could fix and that you ought to fix. So let's bring it back to the O'Bannon case because I want our guests to be happy and I also think it's a, <laughs> a good way to, uh, to kind of bring the conversation into the present day. Um, so how does the NCAA get out of this? That was seen kind of by a lot of folks as a legal victory for the NCAA, even though it was nominally a victory for O'Bannon. So is that kind of part of a broader legal strategy by the NCAA, have they been successful in staving off this latest challenge? And, and what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years? Um, the good news for people who want to change at the NCAA uh, is that their rules, their amateur rules, have been, uh, by a court of appeals even, um, acknowledged to be in violation of the nation's antitrust law. So that's a good thing. The bad thing is that uh, both the district court and the Court of Appeals both continued to allow those rules to exist in a way that, you know, basically allows them in a cartel-like fashion to control the compensation of the players. So now they can get uh, with the so-called cost of attendance un- under the law, not just the rules, under the law. So in effect, the NCA has not been damaged in terms of practicality, but they've been damaged hugely in terms of what the law now says. And so you have uh, two new cases coming up the pipeline, uh, one of which is being brought by Jeff Kessler. We like to call that the nuclear case because what he's basically saying is if these rules are in violation of the antitrust laws, they shouldn't exist. And the NCAA should not be allowed to set the compensation for players. That's something that conferences could do or schools could do, but not the NCAA. It shouldn't be a cartel. And so the question is, now that this, the antitrust uh, issue has been largely settled, although there's a, still a possibility it could go to the Supreme Court, we'll know that next month, um, uh, that's what the NCA lives in fear of, that, that that part of the ruling could bite them down the line. And I would say that the appeals court ruling sort of shows how high the bar is to change the system you know, through the courts or, or through the union movement. I sat for three weeks at the O'Bannon trial, and it was it was pretty compelling, um, you know, that the system needed to change, that, that you know, economically it wasn't legal. And, and the same thing with the union hearing um, at Northwestern. And in both cases, the judge and, and the labor officer who sat in the court in the, in the hearing room for three weeks sided with the players, and only on appeal... Did they overturn them? And it's it's so hard to hit the eject button on the system because nobody wants to be responsible for, you know, sort of dealing this this catastrophic blow to to higher education, to, to colleges across America. And so it, it it's really hard um, through the legal process. And I, and I think one of the reasons we think that players and a strike is truly the most effective way to change what's going on. Except for one thing, and that's the constituency that we haven't discussed. We've mentioned the players. We've mentioned the courts as a, as a possible agent of change. 
ultimately, the universities themselves have the ability instantly, immediately. University presidents could say, we are changing the system. They are the ones that have allowed the NCAA to grow to the, the, the heights or depths of, 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 of what it's become. That's very true. Uh, that is undeniably true. Um, and to this day, I mean, they like the system the way, I mean, way it is, really. Uh, they like not having to pay the players. They like the illusion that the players are getting an education, which is for the most part not true. Um, they like the fact that football and basketball fundamentally subsidize all the other sports on campus. And although individual cases might outrage them on their own campus, um, they're also they're also kind of afraid of the NCAA, and and collectively they're not, they're not going to be willing to stand up. There's a lot of sort of Division One, smaller Division One schools that are not in the Power Five, who who basically say we can't afford to play the pay the players, and um, uh, you, you know we just have to keep doing it the way we're doing it, and and they, who say that even cost of attendance is too much for them. So you know from a financial point of view. Uh, you know, why would they advocate for change when the current system economically works so well for them? And people people often forget this, you know, the NCA is wrong or the NCA is bad or the NCA, but the NCA is these schools. These schools vote on all these rules. These schools um, are the NCAA and it's sort of um, a little bit of a, a straw man kind of thing because you know, when you rag on the NCA or when you say the NCA needs to change, that is the schools. So the schools are often hiding behind the NCAA. Yeah. I always say the same thing about the UN. Yeah, of course it's bad. You got Chad, you got Syria, you got... <laughs> it's going to be bad. And with that comment, I think uh, we can bring the conversation to a close. Jonas Sarah is a columnist for the New York Times. Ben Strauss is a contributing writer for the New York Times. And their book, which is out this week, is called Indentured the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. Joe and Ben, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Coming up next, we'll talk about the Iditarod Sled Dog Race and the documentary The Great Alone. But first, we'd like to tell you a bit about Panoply's newest podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. Hi, I'm Ezra Klein, editor-in-chief of Vox.com, and I've got a new podcast on the Panoply Network. It is called The Ezra Klein Show, which I'm never going to be able to say without feeling like a terrible, terrible narcissist. But it's long-form, intimate, real conversations with newsmakers, with politicians, policymakers, journalists, business leaders, people who are influencing the world in fascinating and important ways. We talk about what they think, why they think it, what they believe. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with these people, and I hope you enjoy it too. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are given away for free over the internet. Lance Mackey is one of the greatest dog sled racers of all time, maybe the greatest, and he's definitely the toughest. Mackey won the 1,000-mile Iditarod race four straight times from 2007 to 2010. All of those victories came after surgery to remove a cancerous growth from his neck. Mackey is the subject of a documentary, The Great Alone, which covers his life and racing career with a focus on the 2013 race. In this clip, Lance talks about his decision to keep racing when his doctors told him it was a bad idea. Main artery showing in my neck, very, very vulnerable to scratches. They told me flat out, if you get a tree branch that pokes you in the neck and pops that open, you're going to bleed to death. If you get a dog that jumps upon you and scratches you with a toenail real bad and pops that open, you're going to bleed to death. And I was warned. In fact, I was told not to ever race dogs again because I'm setting myself up for, you know, death, basically. 
but I'm stubborn. If I fall off my sled, I'm going to have a smile on my face doing something I love to do. Don't tell me I can't run the Iditarod right again. Don't tell me I can't get up and walk right now. But don't tell me I can't. The Great Alone, directed by Greg Coase and produced by our friend John Hawk for Hawk Films, is in select theaters now and will be on iTunes and Amazon and other VOD platforms on March 1st, just a few days before the start of the 2016 Iditarod. Joining us now to discuss it is director Greg Coase. Hey, Greg. Hi there. How are you? Great. And the film is great. Um, and it's just amazing to look at. Um, before we get into Lance and his amazing story, can you just tell everyone sort of what the challenge is of filming a documentary about the Iditarod? The landscapes are amazing. And you're just kind of thinking as a viewer, like, how did they get this footage? Yeah, well, the biggest challenge was Lance. Uh, Lance's schedule itself. himself. He, he doesn't know his schedule when he races. He races with the uh, the dogs dictate how quickly he goes, how slowly he goes, when he rests, when he doesn't rest. It's all about his team and the dogs. So we had to. Um, we could ask Lance what his plans were, but that was uh, that uh, that would do no good because he didn't know. So we just had to be incredibly spontaneous um, and always uh, and didn't sleep a lot. We moved via helicopter a small helicopter and a small single engine plane with some skis on it. And uh, we did our best to stay in front of Lance um, and catch up to him when we weren't in front of him, um, filming him for the, for the nine, 10 days he was on the trail racing. That is remarkable. And the conditions can vary so tremendously in the Iditarod. And what we've read about a lot, you know, us East coasters is that climate change is affecting this race. There've been years when there hasn't been much snow, did you have to adapt to those challenges? And more important, frankly, how do racers like Lance adapt to those challenges over the course of, of the journey? Well, we did have to adapt to them. You know, there were days when uh, when it, uh, mornings we'd wake up and it was snowed in at a certain checkpoint we were uh, we had camped at. Um, and there were other planes there and they couldn't take off. Fortunately, um, because of uh, flight visibility and so forth, we had the helicopter, which then enabled us to stay under that ceiling and move forward. So we had to be very, and, and then make a plan for the fixed wing plane for our other crew. So as a crew, we had to be very, um, like I said, versatile and, and respond to situations as opposed to react. Lance, the exact same, you know, he, um, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, there are no conditions that he, few con conditions that he can't move forward in with his dogs. His dogs are amazing. His teams, all the mushers dogs are amazing. Even in whiteouts, they move forward through it. Um, there are there are checkpoint markers placed every 50 yards, like contractor sticks, and on those sticks are little white pieces or little blue flags, pieces of tape. And I always asked, what were those for, Lance? And he said, well, in a complete whiteout during the day, those those little pieces of tape will flutter and make this little noise, and the dogs hear that, and that's how they know where to go on the trail. Hmm. So, um, yeah, and and the cold, of course, is is uh, is always an issue, the biggest issue there. And they prefer it colder. You know, 20 below, 30 below is perfect conditions for the dogs, Lance tells us, because they get warm and uh, their body heat, it, 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 uh, it balances out, whereas it's not ideal for the musher. Uh, the mushers like it 10, 15, 20 degrees, but it, it means they have to be very careful and go slower with the dogs because they get warm quickly. So there are levels to this story, man. A lot of levels. His dad was one of the founders of the Iditarod, and won uh, race in 78, I believe, and this crazy finish that's maybe like one of the crazier finishes in the history of all of sports when this like multi-week race comes down to like, the final second and you have this footage of 
of Lance Mackey's father with, you know, the ice encrusted beard looking like an old timey prospector. But his dad kind of didn't pay him or his brother that much attention when they were growing up. So Lance is kind of fighting for the approval of his dad. He has cancer and his doctors, as we heard at the top of the segment, they don't want him to compete. And so he faces even more physical hardship than the other mushers in this race that's already the kind of maximal physical test. There's almost too much in this story. (laughs) I don't know what my question is, but um, you obviously found like a fascinating individual and you kind of have a huge challenge in telling the story, right? It's um it, yeah there there are so many levels and so much texture to the story and I think that's what it you know, I know that's what attracted me to it so many questions I wanted answers to whether it be about his relationship with his parents and his father and why was that relationship the way it was for so many years um, his relationship with his animals his team his dogs why the why of that relationship with the race what why does he race why does he work why in those years that he set you know became the Michael Jordan of his sport. Why did that happen? What was it about him that 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 pushed him? Um, so yeah, there are many, many, many um, layers, and um, yeah, you peel one off and you think you've got it solved. It's kind of like redoing a house, you know. And suddenly you're like, oh, there's asbestos, and I, I wouldn't say there's any asbestos in my film, but <laughs> but you get the idea if you're for a home improvement comparison. So at any rate, yeah, it's it was a uh, there are a lot of emotional peaks and valleys um, in this film that go well beyond sport. The the first win by Lance in 2007 is insane because of the father relationship. He broke a runner on the sled. The second one is incredible. Um, he, he basically fakes out the favorite, Jeff King, by pretending to go to sleep and takes off in the middle of the night. And then he wins two more for this four-peat, the greatest accomplishment in this sport. What drives someone to do the Iditarod year after year after year? And is there sort of a code involved in being part of this race? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I'm probably not the best person to answer <laughs> answer it. I can tell you what I think why Lance pushed so hard in those years. And from my observation, I think maybe there was a bit of a chip on his shoulder to prove, to prove to people that he could could take on a task and follow through with it. All of his life, he kind of gotten up until that point, he, he kind of got himself in some trouble. And, uh, and he wanted the respect of his peers, of his parents, um, of his competitors. And I think that chip on his shoulder, and we've talked about it, Lance and I have, and he, he agrees, um, that, that that motivated him and that pushed him forward. What motivates the other mushers, I don't know, but I do know the one thing they all have in common that I witnessed was an absolute love for their team, for their dogs. And that was really beautiful to see. Yeah, and that really comes through in the film. And Lance talks about how he feels this connection to his yeah. dogs that he never did with people, which is sort of touching, but also sad. And there, there, there you go with the levels of the film. And he's this obviously folk hero to native Alaskans. He's sort of not, ju- not just because of the teeth, but he sort of reminded me of Chris Cooper as John LaRoche in uh, Adaptation. Um, that sort yeah, of fervor yeah. that he has for his his um, you know what he's chosen to devote his life to, um, and I think that's all captured very beautifully in the film. Um, it's called The Great Alone. Um, Greg, thank you so much. And you know where can folks catch the movie? 
The movie is available uh, in theaters across the country based on requests from fans. So you can go to tug.com or thegreatalone.com to request it come to your community. And it will be released uh, digitally on VOD, um, digital platforms, and DVD on March 1st. Greg Coase, thank you so much. The movie is The Great Alone. Now it is time for Afterballs and uh, the website for Lance Mackey's Comeback Kennel lists a bunch of dogs. You've got Wyatt, Munch, Electra, Bandana, Smooth, Gigolo, Rad, Stiffy, Airhead, Midget, Grace, Neck, Treble, Michelle, Missy, Fringe, Gnarly, Rev, Zorro, Lippy, Raunchy, Maple, uh, Meyer, Amp, Dome, and there are a bunch more. I don't, that's, that's only a few of them. Um, Larry, Larry, I think is his favorite, best leader ever. Yeah. And then there's tie-dye. Lance's comment on tie-dye on the website is, what I think is the next Larry-type leader, just not yet, still all about having fun to him. When he grows mentally, it will be amazing. Definitely sounds like Gil Brandt at the NFL Scouting Combine. Um, But tie-dye... Tie-dye's vertical is awesome. I like tie-dye. I think we need to give tie-dye some some run here. Um, So, Mike Pesca, what is your tie-dye? So... I'm watching the Grammys last night, and I get a tweet, because, you know, I'm a two-screener. I get a tweet, and it says that uh, Adele is the first person to win all four Grammys. This didn't even happen last night. They're just telling me a little bit about Grammy history in the major categories. I don't know what the major categories are, but they're apparently Song of the Year, Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and Best New Artist. It's hard to do it in the same year, and she didn't do it in the same year. The only person to have done that since, Christopher Cross, who of course took us sailing back in 1981. Now the link to Christopher Cross was an appearance on the Midnight Special, then hosted by Wolfman Jack, we will now hear the Wolfman interact with Christopher Cross. All right, hey, listen, uh, will you tell us how you came to write this beautiful song? Well, just back home, uh, letting the wind kind of carry me around the lakes uh, in Texas. Were you way up there where the air was rare? That's where I was. Oh, wow, all right, all right. And there you hear Chris Cross mentioning that uh, he wrote this in Texas. And if you didn't believe that Chris Cross... Not Jump Jump Criss Cross with the K's, but Christopher Cross, whose real last name isn't even Cross. But, you know, it sounds Yacht Rocky cool. If you don't believe that Christopher Cross is a Texan, by hearing that, the visual will convince you. Chris Cross is, is playing a double-necked guitar. The very first sounds that you hear after the keyboard synth intro to sailing are wind chimes. So this is very Criss Cross-centric. But what Criss Cross is wearing is a Houston Oilers number 34 jersey. He is wearing an Earl Campbell jersey. So I immediately had to investigate why was Christopher Cross wearing an Earl Campbell jersey on the Wolfman Jack hosted Midnight Special of 1981. And it took me to a People Magazine article wherein Christopher Cross claimed that he did not like Texas, he did not like football. The only thing that he liked was when he went to Gillies and met Earl Campbell's manager, and Earl Campbell's manager pressed an Earl Campbell jersey into his hand. Now, further research reveals that they might have had management in common. It might not have occurred in Gillies, and Criss Cross has never backed off his dislike of the Texas football scene, but he stands by his Earl Campbell jersey, 
And the People Magazine article went on to note, as did a Washington Post article, that he fills the Earl Campbell jersey rather well. He's six foot two and pushing the mid 200s. He does. He says that they always tried to get me to play football, but I just wanted to play my, strum my guitar and play my soft rock. As an addendum, as I was watching Chris Cross play sailing in an Earl Campbell jersey, I said to myself, it's a shame that this isn't better known, although it would take away the uh, the poignancy and the uh, zhuzh of my afterball a little bit. You know, people are f- shocked and delighted because they didn't know it. But if everyone had known it, then not Christopher Cross, but Christopher Pratt, Chris Pratt from five years ago, like first season of Parks and Rec, Chris Pratt, could don an Earl Campbell jersey and hold a double neck guitar and be a perfect doppelganger for Christopher Cross. It would be the greatest in the know Halloween costume ever. But Chris Pratt's body no longer looks like Chris Cross's body. And an internet search of the current Chris Cross reveals that Chris Cross's body doesn't either. <laughs> so here's my supposition. We all have probably seen the clip of Earl Campbell on one of his great runs wearing his jersey, and it just gets torn away, like, progressively as various linebackers and defensive backs are trying to bring him down. These are the old tearaway jerseys from back in the day. I would guess that Christopher Cross wore the jersey so that when uh, ladies mobbed him because they were so infatuated with his uh, performance of sailing— that the yes. uh, jersey would just tear away and it would reveal his uh, his physique underneath. But Christopher Cross groupies don't really mob. It's like a slow-mo swooning. <laughs> and I don't know if they could gather the energy to actually tear the jersey as opposed to gently pat it. But it would make Chris Cross feel good. Stefan, what is your tie-dye? Well, when I heard that the West beat the East in the NBA All-Star Game on Sunday, 196 to 173, my first thoughts were, one, it's got to be a record. Two, too bad they didn't get to 200. It was a record, but only for the NBA. And that's because 24 years ago, on January 12th, 1992, Division II Troy State of Alabama beat DeVry Institute of Atlanta by a score that I will save for the end. The full game is on YouTube, and I watched it. So you don't have to, and trust me, you really don't want to. Let's start with a little background. In the late 1980s, Troy's longtime head coach, Don Maestri, was faced with an undersized roster. So he decided to emulate Paul Westhead at Loyola Marymount and run and shoot. As Michael Jaffe wrote in Sports Illustrated in 1992, Maestri's strategy was, quote, to allow opponents to score as long as they score quickly. Troy would press, go for steals. If that failed, they'd give up an often uncontested layup so they could get the ball back, race down the court, and shoot. Eventually, Troy's opponents would get tired. To prepare for this, Troy ran lots of sprints and shot 53s in 20-minute practice sessions. The style reached what appeared to be its apotheosis in 1991 when Troy scored an NCAA record 187 points against DeVry, eclipsing Loyola Marymount's month-old record of 186. For the rematch the next year, it was no secret that the team wanted to go for the record. Here are the pregame announcers breaking it down. Another record set. Alongside me this afternoon is Mac McCarroll. And uh, Mac, what do you think? The odds of seeing another record fall this afternoon? I don't know. It's going to be very tough. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. I've been uh, working out a little plan here, Stephen. I think it's a Boris Yeltsin thing. (laughs) That means you need three keys, right, to launch the big one. Everybody was making that Yeltsin reference, Josh, back in those days. The three keys were astute. Get into rhythm early, score a lot, 
and by far the most important component, get DeVry to cooperate. The announcer said that was likely because DeVry had a good time last year. Before the game, they noted players and coaches had discussed cracking 200 points, and they said that would mean scoring five points per minute. They also mentioned that the scoreboard in Troy's gym only went up to 199. Doesn't look good for Troy after the tip-off, Josh. The Trojans needed 54 seconds to score they're throwing up brick after brick, and they're only up 17-11 after five minutes. But the fix is clearly in. Both teams heave baseball passes, shoot threes or uncontested layups within five seconds of possession. Defense is cursory. Only six fouls will be whistled the entire game, just one of them a shooting foul. DeVry sucks, too, so they're airmailing passes and they're missing layups. And they've only got seven players. Troy subs five at a time every few minutes and finally starts hitting. The score goes from 36-19 with about 11 minutes left in the half to 74-37 with six minutes to go, 91-41 with 420, 100-45 with three, and finally 123-53 to at the break. The pace is so frenetic that the cameraman often doesn't manage to pan from one end of the court to the other quickly enough to record the next shot. It is awful, but it's also mesmerizing. And you start to freak out a little bit when someone dribbles for like a couple of seconds or if the ball hangs above the rim for too long after a shot. Second half, 145 to 62, 166 to 76, 186 to 95 with 10 minutes to go in the game. Well, got one point away from the old record. Yep. And I got One a point feeling, away. This is it, folks. That's going down on the next trip down. It's going down, and this is it. It's only really now a matter of who is it going to be. And Chris Gresham might put it up from right there. There it is right here for the record. Yes! 189 to 95. We've got a new NCAA record. 189, and folks, we've got another quarter of this ball game to play, Tim. All right, at this point, social order pretty much breaks down. The scoreboard malfunctions. No one even attempts to play defense. Nine players are literally standing around while one guy shoots a three or dunks. The buzzer randomly goes off, and a Troy player windmill dunks anyway. With seven minutes to go, Troy hits a three to get to 200 points. At 236 to 125, one of the announcers says, Coach Maestri wants the threes cut off. What happens on the very next possession? A Troy player jacks up a three. At 249 to 129, the announcer says the same thing, and again, Troy hits another bomb. Troy's last bucket of the game is a 30-footer. After the game, the teams all got together and celebrated at midcourt. Some final stats. Unlike that Grinnell dude who scored 138 points on his own, Troy scoring is balanced. 41, 37, 29, 29, 29, 24, 20, 15, 12, and 2. There was one guy who scored the game's first basket and then didn't take another shot. <laughs> Improbably. Troy took 190 shots. They made 102, including 51 of 109 from three. The Trojans finished the season 23 and 6 and lost in the first round of the Division II tournament. And then they moved up to Division I, where they have never scored 200 points again. I don't think you said what the final score was. You're right. I did not. The final score was 258 to 141. Glad I was here. <laughs> I'm glad you were here too, Josh. Josh, what's your tie-dye? Last Thursday night, Louisiana's new governor, Democrat John Bell Edwards, gave a special 
televised budget address to state residents. Honestly, it was pretty boring. Let's get a little taste of that. While my predecessor inherited a billion-dollar surplus when he became governor, I've been left with almost a billion-dollar deficit for this year alone and a $2 billion deficit for next year. You know, Bobby Jindal destroyed the state. People are going to die because they don't have health care, that sort of thing. Pretty boring. Um, But things got a little more exciting when Edward started to get a little bit day after on us running through a series of catastrophic scenarios that would befall the state if it didn't make budget cuts and or increase revenues by raising taxes. Southern University system and the University of Louisiana system and the Louisiana Community and Technical College system are in the same boat. Without legislators approving new revenue this special session, some campuses will be forced to declare financial bankruptcy, which would include massive layoffs and the cancellation of classes. If you're a student attending one of these universities, it means that you will receive a grade of incomplete. Many students will not be able to graduate, and student athletes across the state at those schools will be ineligible to play next semester. That means you can say farewell to college football next fall. You have my attention, sir. I am paying attention now. What did you say about uh, college football? Um, so Sports Illustrated's Andy Staples talked to James Carville, Democratic political consultant slash LSU football fan, not in that order. And Carville said it's a gimmick that people use in politics to grab somebody's attention. Clearly Works. that's true. But it's not totally a gimmick here, Carville said. There's some reality under it. So what is that reality? How did we get here? Julie O'Donoghue, the state politics reporter for the Times-Picayune, had a good rundown of the causes of the state's budget crisis. Uh, Louisiana actually had a lot of money coming in after Katrina, $12.8 billion in federal money in fiscal year 07-08. A lot of people also came to the state to help rebuild. So tax revenues went up. Gambling money was pouring in. Natural gas and oil prices were shooting up. That was great for the state. 2008, they kind of peaked. Um, the governor at that point, uh, Kathleen Blanco, a Democrat, used that windfall to cut taxes and to give state employees pay raises. And then when Bobby Jindal, the Republican who just uh, is now out of office, when he got elected in 2008, he completely repealed something called the Steli Plan, which is a measure that was approved by voters that raised income taxes on some people in exchange for reduced sales taxes. Um, good conservative that he is. Bobby Jindal just got rid of uh, uh, all this taxes. It's like uh, we're not, we're not, we're not paying those anymore. We need taxes. We gotta, we gotta grow the economy. We gotta cut these income taxes. A state economist says that getting rid of the Steli plan has cost the state eight hundred million dollars, which is eighty five percent of the current uh, shortfall. So great job, Bobby Jindal. Way to go. Um, in addition, you've got the low oil prices that are uh, crushing the state's economy. We've also got tax credits to corporations. And this, to me, is the most unbelievable part uh, of this whole equation. Due to all the tax credits, and the most famous one is to the film industry. That's why you see so many movies being made in New Orleans. That they give tax breaks, tax credits to um, film companies to film there. The state is paying out more in tax credits to corporations than they're getting back in taxes from corporations. Savage. It's insanity. It is unreal that this is happening and that this exists. So why then is LSU football, the innocent Leonard Fournette's and Brandon Harris's and Malachi Dupree's, why are they the victims here 
of this fiscal irresponsibility? Well, Stefan, the reason is that $3.9 billion, $3.9 billion of the state budget is reserved for what's called statutory dedications. And uh, as O'Donohue writes, these are pools of money that have been set aside to support a specific program or function. So basically, a huge portion of the state budget is just constitutionally, you can't do anything to it, you can't touch it. And so healthcare is an example of something that can be cut because, you know, you got to cut the healthcare. And higher education is another example of something that is cuttable. And the state has cut it a lot. Um, states, uh, colleges and universities, according to the advocate, have uh, lost 55% of their state aid over the past seven years. This whole thing is a fucking disaster. (laughs) Even um, if the Republican-controlled state legislature refuses to increase taxes and there are more cuts to higher ed, there's not any chance. This is where we get back to the football gimmick. There's no chance that this doomsday scenario will come to pass. There's so much private money, a.k.a. there are too many rich people who care about LSU football, for there to be any possibility that it goes to way. They, they will find a solution. They'll find a way to pay Leonard Fournette. <laughs> Do not worry, Leonard. You're taken care of. Your envelope will be is safe. So that's not the end of the uh, sports part of this afterball. There is, a, there is a little bit of sports in this year afterball um, because there is a sport that's under threat, and it is your six-time national champion LSU baseball team, which has led the nation in attendance for 20 consecutive seasons. Um, it's typically the only program in the country college baseball to average more than 10,000 per game. This is a very popular... Wow, 10,000. Yeah, very popular team in the state. People love their LSU baseball. So the way that college baseball works, it's it's odd the way that the scholarships work. And this is kind of common across all the non-revenue sports. Um, it's a rev- revenue-generating sport at LSU, but not really anywhere else. So the NCAA allots 11.7 scholarships to college baseball. And those 11 and two-thirds full rides are divided up among a maximum of 35 players on the roster. And the tuition, this is where LSU gets a big recruiting advantage over other college baseball schools. The tuition for in-state players is often paid via academic scholarships um, through something called the TOPS program. And the TOPS program, um, as you know, if you went to high school in Louisiana, Stefan, um, it pays for full college tuition. It's a very generous program. Full college tuition for Louisiana high school schoolers with a minimum 2.8 GPA and a score of 20 on the ACT. We love we love our ACT down there, mm-hmm. or the SAT equivalent. So those merit scholarships helped uh, pay for college for 50,000 students this past year. That cost the state $250 million. $250 million. Mm. That, sounds high, that sounds cuttable. It sounds like a big mm. chunk of money that could help make up for a nearly billion-dollar budget shortfall. Um, so Edwards, the governor, his current budget proposal – would fund the TOPS program at only 20% of its current level. That means that about 37,500 students who currently get the funding wouldn't get it. And that would mean the LSU baseball team would have a harder time recruiting players given that they wouldn't be able to um, give them scholarships, whether academic or athletic. So given the state's problems, you probably shouldn't care about what's going to happen to LSU sports. But if you don't want to take a millisecond to feel sorry for someone, do not feel sorry for less miles. To not feel sorry for Leonard Fournette. And you know what? LSU baseball program, it's still going to exist. It just might not be as good because they won't be able to give as many scholarships to, to people. So your millisecond, actually maybe like a micro millisecond, feel sorry for the LSU baseball fan who perhaps will not see his team get like 
so many wins against SEC competition. <laughs> Have we defined that down enough, Stefan? Yeah. Okay. I That's think we're good. It's a grave threat. I think we're good. It's a grave threat. And also, Louisiana is totally fucked. All right. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.